0: We are doing this series um, entitled, Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In. Like I said, it comes from a line from this guy, N.T. Wright, quoted by Tim Keller, Um, but N.T. Wright's the guy that first came up with it. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Chances are, I don't believe in that God either, is really the uh, the whole quote. And tonight, we're gonna talk about um, what's been called the Emancipation Narrative. And the importance of understanding that, to understand um, even how we're to think about God and about Christianity in our day and our age. And so tonight, the, really the topic is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I can't believe in a God who destroys human freedom. And there are various... Um, parts to this. I won't get into all of them. Uh, For some people, the real concern with considering Christianity and even thinking it plausible is the idea that God can tell us how to think. In other words, you have to believe certain things. For other people, they're more concerned about God telling us or Christianity saying that we determine or tell you how you're to behave. Of course, we just sang a song that was doing that, right? And actually, um, there aren't many communities that actually sort of deserve the name community that don't have some kind of rules about how you are to behave to be part of that community. Uh, The idea that you could live any way you want and actually have meaningful community with any other human beings that's more than just surface level um, is actually pretty naive. Everybody has, certain rules every community that's worth a community has rules but there are a lot of people that really have this objection to christianity and like i said as we're going through this series this isn't just people sort of outside of the church who uh have never really you know been part of the church or part of christianity this is for people inside as well what about the idea that Christianity says God tells us we should believe certain things and not other things, and we should do certain things and not do other things. How does that square with the idea of human freedom, with the idea of human flourishing? That's that's the topic we're going to talk about tonight. Now, sometimes I start out with a scripture passage. We're going to get to a couple different passages, and I actually incorporated those into the notes so we'll get to that, but I wanna start out just more considering um, kind of where these ideas, sort of how they float around in our culture. Two, two quotes that I've know they're a little old, but I found them pretty helpful. I don't know if, do any of you guys know who Lannis Morissette was? Yeah, okay. Yeah, she was awesome, awesome artist. And um, so Rolling Stone Magazine, actually the, the, okay, this is really gonna date me. Um, the December 1999 issue was a remarkable issue because they interviewed all kinds of people about questions about the meaning of life. Fascinating. I've got both these quotes from that issue and I I still find them very helpful to reflect on because I think they articulate what a lot of people uh, maybe in this room or maybe friends that you've talked with or parents or siblings or whatnot um, believe. Here's what Lannis Moore said, I've realized that God has no preference about how we live our lives. I don't think God prefers one choice over another. He or she or it notes rather than judges. Once I realized that, it immediately made me feel more responsible for my own life. If God doesn't judge us, all of a sudden it puts the onus on us humans. We are the creative force. We are creating what our world looks like right now and will look like down the road. Now, I I don't wanna quote somebody like this just to mock this. There's a lot in this that I would say I would commend. The idea that we should take seriously the way we think and the impact that that has on the world, not just today, but down the road. And feeling a sense of responsibility for that. But I also don't think that this is real freedom the way she might think. And we'll talk about that tonight. Then Trent Reznor, now he was in this band Nine Inch Nails. Now he's more known, I guess, for soundtracks, right? Um, Because he's done some really amazing soundtracks. Um, Again, this was back end of 1999. Um, It could have been said yesterday, though, because the issue of school shootings is still going on, of course. Uh, He said, I've always said, based on my own head, give people the benefit of the doubt. Give them credit to think for themselves. Nobody has the right to say, hey, I'm telling you what you can and cannot see because I know better than you. That's ridiculous. I feel, yeah, empower the individual. Then I turn on the news and you see some new idiot who kills kids in a church and my argument goes out the window. It's troubling. I appreciate the frankness of that. In other words, he recognizes the tension of wanting to give people maximal freedom, and yet there are limits. And I think he's wrestling with the tension of where do you place the limits, and who gets to decide? That's a legitimate question that we all have to wrestle with. But I think it gets at this issue that I want to talk about tonight. Is God a cosmic killjoy? And why do so many people believe this both people that have been raised in Christian settings and outside, when the Bible actually speaks all over the place about freedom. So why, why do so many people think that Christianity is not even worth considering because they could never worship or follow a God who tells them how to act and tells them what to believe? Why is that the perception that so many people inside and outside of the church have about Christianity when the Bible talks all over the place about freedom? And I have one one idea. How many of you have ever heard a sermon or a message at church on the topic of Christian freedom? Yeah? Yeah? I see one hand, two, this is always, always the case. It's never been different as many times as I've asked this question over years. Now, this is a problem because Jesus says in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and it will make you free. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter five summarizes the whole point of Christianity and says it this way, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Martin Luther wrote a lot of things, some of them kind of crazy. He said some crazy things. Uh, He said some good things, and he wrote some things that were really helpful. But he said, of all the things I've written, there's only two or three things that I think should last beyond my lifetime. One of them was his little essay on the freedom of the Christian. And yet I doubt there's anybody in here who's read it. John Calvin, who's often not regarded as somebody who cared very much about freedom. I don't know what you think about Geneva and John Calvin. We could talk over coffee. I could probably fill you in on some more of the real story of that. But um, he wrote a very important chapter in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, a whole chapter on Christian liberty, on freedom. As a matter of fact, the Puritans wrote more books and talked more about Christian freedom than anybody here uh, has ever really read or heard books about Christian freedom. Again, you don't think of it that way, but it was a huge deal for the Puritans. One of the reasons that they were opposed to so many things is because they said our conscience does not allow us to have freedom to do this. Please don't make us do things unless our conscience allows us to do them. Now, whether they were right or wrong I just think it's fascinating the Bible speaks so much about Christian freedom so many Christians in previous centuries particularly people that you don't think of as caring much about Christian freedom talked about it wrote about it a lot but not in our day James in his letter in the New Testament even calls the law the law of God the perfect law of freedom Some translations say the perfect law that gives freedom. And yet in our day and age, I think those things are never thought of as going together. Law does not equal freedom. It never can, never has, never will. But I want to suggest that there's a narrative that needs to be examined, that drives the way we think about this, even squeezes the way we read the Bible and think about Christianity. So there's a narrative that needs to be examined. There is a biblical theme, namely Christian freedom, that needs to be recovered, and then some ideas that need to be pondered in light of that. That's what we're gonna talk about tonight. So the first is what we call the emancipation narrative. This is a narrative that needs to be examined. Sometimes it's called the Exodus narrative. Maybe you're familiar, it's one of the biggest stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is the idea of the Exodus. God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. God raised up Moses to confront pharaoh and say what let my people go that becomes a paradigm that bleeds into so much of western culture the idea that freedom is unspeakably precious and to be guarded and preserved and maintained but that's actually a biblical idea it's where it comes into the world um if you look at the idea of human rights human dignity freedom these are all biblical ideas but the emancipation narrative in many ways though it draws on exodus and the story of exodus and the basic kind of logic of the idea that god's people need to be free it leaves out some important parts of the context of the biblical story and thus is a distortion and i want us to talk about that for a second. So there's a guy named Christopher Walken. Uh, If you want to read a big thick book that will be super helpful to you, it's called Biblical Critical Theory. And before you be like, oh gosh, Kevin's gone all woke, let's talk about that. There's a lot of good things about being woke in the Bible, um, especially on the Mount of Transfiguration where the the disciples became fully awake to God's glory. That's a good thing. The book of Ephesians that says, rise up, O sleeper. In other words, wake up. There's lots of things we should wake up to, okay? So don't dismiss that idea. Biblical critical theory is an excellent book, and it basically is saying what is the narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that should shape the way we think about all of life and all other ideas and worldviews out there. It's very, very helpful. And in his chapter on Exodus and the exodus emancipation narrative, he says this. He's talking about a guy, Jean-Francois Lyotard. Yeah, just like the thing that you might wear if you're a dancer. Um, that's how you say it. Um, here's, here's what Christopher Walken says. In his book, The Postmodern Condition, Jean-Francois Lyotard identifies what he calls the emancipation narrative as one of the two great Meta-narratives of, what he, of the world. So if you wanna be an educated person, you need to understand what the emancipation narrative is because it is one of the most important, he says, the two most important meta-narratives, stories, overarching stories that control the way people think about life and who they are and their purpose. Time and time again, the modern West finds its identity in having been freed from former oppressions and in continuing to free itself from those that still remain. In the Bible, the Exodus emancipation narrative finds its place alongside a suite of other powerful narratives, such as creation, fall, exile, and eschatological consummation. That's a fancy word that means the end times, the consummation of all things, okay? But in modernity, Emancipation grows to become the dominant cultural story, leading to a social outlook that interprets all situations, note this, in terms of the oppressor and the oppressed. If for the person whose only tool is a hammer, everything is a nail, then for the society with an emancipation narrative, Everything is an oppression from which liberation must be sought. Have you ever heard that idea? For the man who only has a hammer, everything is a nail. If it's the only tool you've got, then everything looks like a nail and all you can do is bash things. And I don't think I have to convince you that that's where we're at in our world today. That doesn't diminish the fact that there are real oppressions that need to be challenged. Okay. Not saying that, but what I am saying and what uh, Christopher Walken is saying is that emancipation narrative in the Bible, in Exodus, actually has a context. It's not disconnected and cut off all by itself. So ironically, of course, even though this narrative of emancipation, this longing, this goal of freedom, has its root in the story of Exodus in the Bible, today it's regularly used to call from liberation from the bondage of religious dogma and Christianity. So that's the irony of the time we live in, that this narrative of emancipation that actually is rooted in the Bible and the idea that God has made people for freedom is used most often today to attack Christianity as being the oppression that needs to be, uh, we need to be delivered from. Right? And of course there are versions of Christianity that one needs to be liberated from. One of my favorite things Martin Luther said, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. Many people are laboring under false versions of Christianity and false ideas of God. But the Exodus narrative in the Bible, stripped of its context, leads to all kinds of problems. Let me talk about this. Now, what's interesting is, I know, you you know, preachers aren't supposed to talk about politics, but of course, politics in its original meaning, just retarks, it's just talking about human relationships. Um, And so, you gotta talk about that. The Bible, it's everywhere in the Bible. This emancipation narrative affects both the political left and the political right in different ways, but they're really two sides of the same coin. If both groups think that the main problem is oppression that people need to be liberated from, the people on the right, particularly the libertarians, it's the government and taxation that's the problem. If we could just get rid of that, everything would be better, we'd be free. And our goal is to get the maximum amount of freedom that we possibly can, particularly with our money. On the left, they have a whole other list of oppressions most of them uh, are connected of course to um, socially unjust prejudices long-standing inequalities and oppressions and again some of those are very important and Christians should be the first to say these need to be knocked down okay but both of these projects even though they're anchored in this biblical Exodus narrative ignore the other biblical themes like love for your neighbor and stewardship and responsibility and torn out of its context emancipation the idea that freedom and and by freedom i mean autonomy freedom to do whatever you want whenever you want think whatever you want is a distortion that leads to all kinds of problems it actually becomes what the bible would call an idol john calvin is said to have um, said this phrase a half truth masquerading as the whole truth is a complete untruth. So often, half truths masquerade as the whole truth. It's one of the challenges about being a college student is that all of the various disciplines tend to think they can explain all of life in terms of their discipline, whether it's economics, political science, biology, psychology, sociology, right? Rather than seeing each of them as contributing some insight into what does it mean to be human and what our purpose is, they tend to, they tend to think they can explain all of life in terms of their discipline, and that is when you lose the concept of the university, you just have a big diversity and a lot of power plays, right, which is the world we live in. Um, So G.K. Chesterton said this, great, remember I mentioned him last week, great essayist, uh, influence on C.S. Lewis, he said, If you see a fence and you don't know what it's for, you probably should try to figure out who put it up and why before you tear it down. If you see a fence and you don't know what it's there for, you should probably try to figure out why and who put it up before you tear it down. This is getting at the problem with the emancipation narrative by itself. The problem, as he explained elsewhere, is when you break the big laws, like what does it mean to be human and what are we here for, you don't get liberty. You don't even get anarchy. You actually get the little laws. Maybe some of you have grown up or been around Christians that you would say were legalistic, always worried about all these picky little rules. Have you ever wondered why in those contexts, people just seem to come up with more and more and more rules. It's because when you break the big laws, when you, seek, when you quit asking what are we here for, and you just reduce it to can I do this and can I not do that, you end up coming up with more and more rules. It's, I, you see this particularly in a lot of books on dating from Christian people, right? They, they tend to wanna try to wrestle with like how far is too far on a date and rarely ask the question, what is sexuality for? What does it mean to be human, right? And so they just kind of come up with all these little rules and you're like, well, this book over here said this rule and this book over here. And and then we're kind of like, well, I like this one. Okay, that's the way to decide. (laughs) This is what happens. You don't get the little, you don't get anarchy, you don't get freedom, you get the little laws. Or maybe the way um, the Who said it is so good. Meet the new boss, same. As the old boss, Uh, if if you you know if you were alive when the communist revolution would have happened, right? Hoping for freedom for the poor and the oppressed. Have you been to Russia? I've been to Russia. I was over in Russia when the Berlin Wall came down, playing Christian music. That's a story I can tell you another day. But let me tell you, let me tell you, the ruling class just switched, but the the poor were still the poor. The ruling class just switched, and it's always like that. When you break the big laws, you tend to get the little laws, and that brings us to the biblical idea of freedom, the biblical central theme. So here's the problem. So many people, when you talk to them about Christian freedom, particularly if they're parents or youth pastors, they get real nervous. And I understand, because I've got three, uh, well, two teenagers still, um, one who's not a teenager anymore, but I understand, all right? Um, but the problem with many people and how they look at the issue of freedom is that they think about freedom in a way that isn't derived from the bible as much as it's derived from the emancipation narrative and then we try to sort of put a little christian frosting on it right we spend so much energy focused on what we need to be free from that we rarely consider what we are set free for. The biblical idea of freedom is always about what have you been set free for. So go back to the Exodus narrative itself. In the book of Exodus, in the Bible, Moses does not merely say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Do you know what he says? Anybody? He says, let my people go so that they may worship me. See, the emancipation narrative is not a means to an end, or sorry, not a means in itself, an end in itself. It is a means to the end of being able to worship God, because even though they were enslaved, God had never changed his purpose for mankind and for his people, which was to enjoy him and to worship him in freedom He is the God who created us to marry himself to us. This is the verse we used last week, Isaiah 54, 5. The Lord our God, your maker, is your husband. He's not just the one who makes you and says, you better live like this. He's the one who says, I made you this way. I made you this way. I'm going to tell you because I'm a gracious and kind God, what I made you for. And at the heart of it, it's this, I made you so that I could marry myself to you, right? So in the Exodus narrative, it's not just about let my people go. It's let my people go so that they might worship me. And that's a huge difference. The Exodus narrative, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in the culture, stripped of the purpose for which God wanted his people to be free misses the point completely. This is why, for instance, I'm opposed to putting the Ten Commandments in public places on courtroom walls. And you might say, really, and you're a Christian? Yes, here's my qualification, unless you include the preface. Because the Ten Commandments are never to be understood apart from the preface. If you strip them from the preface, you miss the point. What is the preface? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. If you don't start the Ten Commandments that way, you'll completely miss the point. What is the point? The point is I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Now, here are the conditions under which freedom will flourish. Live this way. Be a community where people's possessions are honored, where the truth matters. Be a community where the true God is worshiped rather than idols. They are the 10 conditions for community. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, they're not called the 10 commandments. They're simply called the 10 words. And they're the 10 words to help us stay free. God didn't say, I'm gonna bring you out of slavery, out of Egypt, so that I can put you back into slavery with these commandments. And yet for so many people, judging at least by the way they experience their faith, that's kind of what they seem to think Christianity is about. And they're not sure they really want to be a part of that. And I understand it. I wouldn't want to be a part of that either. But I have to tell you, it is a distortion of the Bible and God of the Bible, right? So that's what I say. So if, if we strip the, the, uh, the Exodus narrative from its context, it's no wonder then that people can't make sense of why God would give a law, Right? Because like and and there are some people actually, you know, there's a a kind of a theology called dispensationalism and old dispensationalism said that Israel, when God said, "Okay, here's the law, they should have said, no, we like to the conditions under Abraham where we just had to trust by faith. We don't want the law. They, They literally teach that you shouldn't have that Israel should have rejected the law. Well, that's a, a real distortion but th- for lots of reasons. But th- I do understand why people can't seem to make sense of why God would set them free only to put them back in bondage. The point is, the law, as James says, is the perfect law of freedom. And it's because we tend to think of freedom from rather than freedom for that we get this wrong all the time. Listen, if you were out fishing on a riverbank, like somebody might be able to do on our camping trip, Um, and and a fish literally jumps out of the water and starts flopping around saying, freedom, freedom, I'm free, right? It's not going to be flopping around for long. Freedom is not just freedom from your conditions. No matter how oppressive you might think they be, it's always got to be connected to what you were made for. Biblical freedom is always about embracing what it means to be truly human and can never be understood Separated from understanding the purpose for which God made us. It's like the Barbie movie. Yes, it is. Because one of the most profound things about that movie is true freedom is not just found by leaving what you might see as stifling and oppressive. Freedom from without freedom to embrace a noble purpose leaves us stuck. And only the voice of the creator can rescue us. How? By speaking graciously to us about what we were made for. I hope you caught that if you saw that movie. And if you didn't see the movie, you should go see it. Right? And here's the point. Origin stories, the origin story for Barbie was very important. Origin stories are very important for humans. I know they're important for Marvel characters too. But they're very important for humans. And what is the origin story of humans. And more importantly, how do you know what it is? Somebody has to tell you. Somebody has to tell you. That requires the voice of the Creator speaking to us about why we were made and how we are to live rather than leaving us groping in the dark. Our origin story is that we are freed slaves who've been brought into God's own family. And that is why the psalmist loves God's law. They ever strike you as strange, we read a little bit of Psalm nineteen Psalm nineteen is the longest psalm in the Bible, which means it 's the longest praise song i 'm not sure Israel ever sang the whole thing at one sitting we don 't have any evidence that they actually did okay it 's really long and it 's really it 's really carefully um, prepared and arranged it 's actually an acrostic. It takes the Hebrew alphabet and does it right it 's very it's a very remarkable piece of composition, and it's all about God's law. You know, it's fascinating. i talk to Christians sometimes who are like, oh, you Presbyterians, you don't really believe in the Holy Spirit and know about the Holy Spirit. And, and I sometimes I'll ask, well, what do you think that we're missing? And they'll say, well, you don't believe that, you know, uh, and they'll tell me all these things. they say, have you read Psalm 19 lately? 119 lately? And they'll say, well, no. Uh, and that's not, you know, no, nobody reads Psalm 19. It's really long, 119 is really long. But if you read it, and you take note, it's amazing, almost everything that modern Christians tell me the Spirit does, the law of God is said to do in Psalm 119. It brings joy, it gives life, it gives light, it gives guidance, all the things that people are like, I've got to have the Spirit, and if I don't have the Spirit, I can't have, I'm not downplaying the Spirit by any means, but I'm saying the law of God is way more important than we realize and what's I think so hard for us to even uh, embrace or even resonate with is the effusive, gushing love that the psalmist has for the law of God. And that's because we think of freedom as primarily being about what we've been set free from, and we think all law is inherently oppressive and limiting. But what God says is, no, do you understand what a big deal it is that God says, this is actually what I made you for. So you don't have to just grope in the dark like all the other pagan peoples wondering what would set off the gods and make them want to squish us like a bug and what would actually please them and make rain come down. Most of the ancient texts we have of all the ancient texts in the world are obsessed with trying to figure out the will of the gods and kinds of techniques to figure it out. Way too many Christians spend too much time trying to figure out little techniques to figure out the will of God, because the great contrast with the God of the Bible is he freely tells us what we're made for. He doesn't hide it from us. He speaks and graciously says, this is what I made you for. And yet we think of the law as inherently oppressive. We don't get it, because we don't understand freedom. We don't understand freedom and i think so many christians have unfortunately missed this vital theme let me show you two passages that uh, i don't even know if you know these passages but they're fascinating in this regard first is in 1st timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So what is it that Paul says is a doctrine of demons taught by people whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron? Here it is, verse 3. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Can you believe that? The apostle Paul, the guy that you think is always like cramping our style, says the doctrine of demons is telling people to not have sex and not to enjoy good food. Did you know that was in the Bible? I don't think very many Christians know that that's in the Bible. You know how I know that? Because I was in a seminary class with 100 people studying to be pastors, and the teacher, Jaron Barr, said, how many people know what Paul calls a doctrine of demons in the New Testament? And not a single person raised their hand. And if you pressed us, we would have said things like, well, legalism or denying that Jesus came in the flesh. Those are all bad things, okay? But the doctrine of demons is telling people sex is bad. And yet I hear Christian teachers all the time say it. Even Augustine, as great a teacher as he was, said that sex is a necessary evil to propagate the human race. But if you enjoy it, it's sin. That's probably been in the church for a long time. A lot of Christians basically have this impression, that the more holy you are, the more miserable you'll be. And no wonder people think that God is a cosmic killjoy. Did you ever wonder, like how crazy is it Jesus described the kingdom of God to the greatest party you've ever experienced? Because I don't know many Christians that if you actually get them to be honest, would say, yes, ever since I've been a Christian, life is like the greatest party. You know why I think we are so far from that image? I think as most of us have this idea, well, it wouldn't be a party if I wasn't invited. We don't appreciate what a big deal it is that we've been invited to the party. If we understood that, it would change a lot. But this is, this is what Paul says. He tells Timothy basically, if you point this out, if you point this out to the, to the brethren, you will be a good minister. Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be a good minister? To tell people that sex and food are created to be received with thanksgiving. That doesn't mean you have to pray over it to make it good. It's actually a reference to the Genesis creation account, where God looked at the world he made, even the naked bodies of Adam and Eve, and said, this is good, right? And I don't think many Christians think about that that way. Why, then, is so much Christian teaching fearful about enjoying the good stuff that God has made? Now, this isn't all the Bible has to say. It does say, do not use your freedom for sensual indulgence. Okay? I understand that. But I don't think that's the emphasis I need for most of you guys. I think the emphasis most of you all need, if you've grown up around Christians, is it's okay to say that this world is all kinds of good stuff. You know, the Bible never says that this world is evil. The Bible says this world is frustrated, that's Romans 8. It's frustrated because mankind is not serving the role of steward that he should have served. But the creation is not evil, the Bible never says that. It doesn't even say it's fallen, it says it's cursed and frustrated. Another passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 and 23, Paul says this, Christianity should never be equated with always saying no to everything and the harsh treatment of the body. Paul says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why then, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Listen to this, verse 23. These things, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, they all have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Actually, the Greek could be translated, they not lack any value, but they actually are worse than useless. They make it actually worse. And if you go look at Romans chapter seven and chapter eight, Paul says that if the law hadn't said do not covet, I never would have known what coveting was. That the law, the commandment, actually sin in me took that opportunity to make me buck up and basically see like, hey, who are you to tell me what I can long for and what I can't long for? Do not covet, come on God, right? So that is fascinating. So many, so many people think that Christianity is about saying no to everything. This is why C.S. Lewis argued, perhaps our desires are not too weak, sorry, not too strong, they're too weak. Do you ever think about that? Well, last, last couple points here. The emancipation narrative stripped of its context and what the Bible says we're set free for leads to distortions that affects more of us than you probably realize. If we buy into the myth that life is found solely in being free from, then we will come to see that to be free in that way, freedom as autonomy, is to be alienated from each other. To the degree that you feel like you need to be free to do what you want whenever you want, to that degree you will be isolated. And it's no wonder that loneliness is an epidemic. I had um, a couple that I married years and years and years ago who were having some struggles in their young marriage. And Wendy and I met with them and one of them said, basically I need to be free to do whatever I want whenever I want, which in her case meant hanging out uh, at like Cafe Coco till like four in the morning every night and her husband never knew where she was or what she was doing. And I was like, okay, if that's your basic non-negotiable, this marriage isn't going to last. To the degree that you feel like you have to have absolute freedom to do whatever you want when you want, to that degree you can't be dependent upon. And to that degree you will never have the kind of relationships you want. And that's the problem with the world today. We pursue autonomy as the highest goal. I want to be free of everything I possibly can. And yet we also long for community. And you can't pursue both of them together because they work at cross purposes. And not only that, autonomy works at cross purposes with what God made you for. Autonomy is a false gospel because God offers up something else, something surprising. He invites us to love. And here's the thing about love. Love always constrains us. Whether it's love of guitar playing, right? Whether it's love of another person. Let me, th- let me just say this about guitar playing. What in the world am I talking about? If you love to play the guitar, but you never practice, the things that you can do and the freedom you will enjoy on your instrument will never be all they could be. It's simple as that. If you don't limit some of your freedom to focus on things that are more important to you, you will miss out on some of the freedom and enjoyment that you could have. This is just basic. It's built into the way the universe works because we're finite beings, and love always constrains us. Rather than this false gospel of absolute autonomy, free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, God says, no, come, die, and follow me, right? And it's so paradoxical. But the reason, the reason that God is not a cosmic killjoy is because he loves us and he says, why in the world would you wanna do all these other things? As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Thinking of freedom in terms merely of what you can and cannot do is to miss the point. It will distort your view of God and it will lead to what the Bible calls a form of godliness without the power because there's no love at the heart of it, all right? And what you think about God has everything to do with how you live. I'm going to close with this quote, one of my favorite quotes from this old uh, Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Who is the God you don't believe in? Maybe he's not the actual God of the Bible. Listen to what Spurgeon said. When I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Why don't I believe in the God uh, who tells us, don't do this, don't do that? Because the God I know is the God who loves us with a everlasting love who sent his son to die on the cross for us that constrains us it constrains me I hope it constrains you and it's why we gather and we sing hymns of praise to God to be reminded of who he is and what he's done and so we're going to close with another hymn come on up